You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. <laughs> It's Thursday, August 13, 2020, just after market close in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington in New York, joined shortly by our managing editor, Ed Harrison. But first, with today's stories, Peter Cooper. Thanks, Ash. Today, initial jobless claims have dropped below 1 million to 963,000, seasonally adjusted for the week ending August 8th. This is the first time that initial jobless claims fell below the 1 million level since the beginning of the pandemic in March. For the week ending August 1st, continuing claims, seasonally adjusted, fell to 15.5 million from 16.1 million. Both of these data points beat economists' expectations for an initial claims of 1.1 million and continuing claims of 15.8 million. Together with this data and the most recent jobs report from July, which stated that non-farm payrolls increased 1.8 million for a combined 9.3 million jobs added in the past three months, the jobless rate fell to 10.2%. This is all occurring as the total number of coronavirus cases in the U.S. is receding from its highest levels last month, and the effect of fiscal aid for America is fading. How the labor market is recovering could also further drive a wedge between the two parties in Congress, overcoming to an agreement on a new stimulus bill, should they resume talks at a later time, if at all. Overall, it demonstrates that the rest in the labor market is currently easing, as hiring is picking up, even though unemployment is still historically high. Despite all of this progress, there is still a long way to go as the employment gains experienced in the past few months still have not restored half of the jobs that were lost because of the pandemic. With millions of people seeking work and many essential workers with low morale and under immense pressure, there is still an incredible amount of weakness in the U.S. labor market. Many large retailers have discontinued hazard pay for essential workers in the past several weeks, even as daily coronavirus cases are still higher than they were at the beginning of the pandemic, and their risk of infection remains high. With the politicization of masks, many customers have retaliated when retail workers attempt to enforce mask policies within stores. Some of the altercations have even been violent, with added responsibilities which include increased sanitation procedures, reduced hours for workers, hostile customers, and general fear for their health, many essential workers are cracking under it all and quitting. Turnover during the pandemic has generally been high, but in the most recent data, which is for June this year, the Bureau of Labor Statistics showed that the number and rate of people quitting their jobs is increasing. While today's job report demonstrates promise, we cannot forget about the intricacies of how the U.S. labor market is currently faring. And with that, I'll hand it back to you, Ash. Thank you, Peter, and welcome back, Ed. Yeah, it's great to be back and talk to you. It's been about three days now. I have a decent number of things that uh, I've looked at that are on my mind. Yeah, so what are you looking at today? Let's dive right in. Yeah, there are two things. One is I want to continue the conversation that we talked about with regard to the uh, framing that I had on Monday. Uh, I just want to continue that conversation about thinking about the momentum trade as bond proxies uh, and what that means going forward. Also, I, I was looking at initial claims and a lot of talk about the fiscal cliff going forward. Yeah, you know, I actually went and uh, watched the uh, Milton Berg interview. I could see what you uh, were digesting there. It's a lot of material. 
Oh yeah, definitely. And uh, it's, I, I mean, I think he was in a quandary. You just going back for the audience, we were talking on Monday about uh, two interviews that I did that gave me some thought about how to think about just strategically, what's the framework to think about the market environment that we're in. They were one with Milton Berg, two with Charlie McElligot, and the two of them uh, brought me to a framework that I feel comfortable with and I tried to uh, elucidate in uh, on Monday. But Berg, you know, his indicators, he's going against a lot of his indicators because the market that we're dealing with right now is weird for him. It, the, the price signals are not telling him what they should be telling him. So his spidey sense, if you will, is telling him, uh, you know, go against these these signals. And he knows that he probably shouldn't be doing that. But it just it, this is a very difficult time to call turning points. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, I find that very interesting as well. It's not just that his uh, his 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 position is contrarian; it's that his position is contrarian versus his own framework and signals. And so too, I thought also with Charlie McElligot, another very dense piece uh, in terms of the information communicated. Uh, again, a very contrarian signal. Yeah, uh, both. I, I think you're definitely waiting at the, the the deep end of the pool when you're talking to these two guys, yeah. and uh, hopefully. Uh, a lot of what they had to say got across in a cogent way. Yeah. So what what are your final takeaways now that you've had some time to synthesize uh, McElligot and uh, Milton Berg? Yeah, I was thinking about it in terms of uh, let me let me sort of frame it how I'm thinking of it. Uh, the whole bond proxy thing. Uh, and this comes from McElligot uh, as much as anything else. The uh, let's let's look at it in terms of secular stagnation. Um, the. The the jumping off point, I would say, is a tweet that I had that I, I tweeted out today from a, a piece from David Rosenberg earlier in the day. So David Rosenberg, he had his uh, a morning uh, note that came out, and he said this. He said, this has been a huge rally, uh, matching uh, what it did for five months off the November 2029 low, 1929 lows. But there is no bull market when the bank stocks are still 30% below their highs. So how is it possible for you to have a bull market, a new leg up in the business cycle when bank stocks, you know, the traditional value cyclical uh, trade are 30% off their highs? That's not a signal of bull. It's a signal of secular stagnation. And so the outgrowth of that is what we see a bull flattening in the yield curve with the Fed pending rates at zero and then rates out the curve uh, moving towards zero because of the time frame that people think that the Fed is going to be on hold. What does that mean? That means that your discount rate for equities and all risk assets uh, have decreased. And so that makes the what I would call the um, of uh, the longest lived assets, uh, you know, long duration assets, more more interesting because you get a much bigger pickup from the distant cash flows in those assets as a net present value calculation. So an example would be a Nikola, 
uh, the truck company that is only making $36,000 in revenue over the last quarter, you know, five or 10 years from now, people are thinking, okay, this company is going to be going gangbusters. Let's get into that. That only works when the discount rate is really low. You jack the discount rate up, and then suddenly that doesn't look so good. So that, that's sort of the framework I'm, I'm thinking about it. I had a quote that I wanted to read to you. This is from, uh, uh, I, I put this on credit write downs. It's actually from uh, Ludwig von Mises, who's a Austrian economist uh, who was really popular in the mid 20th century. This is what the guy says. He says, the lowering of the rate of interest stimulates economic activity. Projects which would not have been thought profitable if the rate of interest had not been influenced by the manipulations of the banks and which therefore would not have been undertaken or nevertheless found profitable and can be initiated. The more active state of business leads to increased demand for production and the wages of labor rise and the increases the increase in wages leads in turn to an increase in prices of consumption goods if the banks would refrain from any further extension of credit and limited themselves to what they had already done, the boom would rapidly halt. But the banks do not deflect from their course of action. They continue to expand credit on a larger and larger scale, and prices and wages correspondingly continue to rise. This upward movement could not, however, continue indefinitely. The material means of production and the labor available have not increased. All that has increased is the quantity of the fiduciary media, which can play the same role as money in the circulation of goods. The means of production and labor, which have been diverted to the new enterprises, have had to be taken away from other enterprises. Society is not sufficiently rich to permit the creation of new enterprises without taking anything away from other enterprises. So to make a long story short, what he's trying to say is you're skewing asset allocation. Uh, what you're saying, what you're basically doing is that you are artificially shifting risk and time preferences uh, about uh, capital investment that is skewing the way that the market is looking at things. And this perfectly describes the dichotomy between the banks on the one hand, 30% below their all-time highs, and the likes of Tesla, the likes of Apple and Google and so forth. So that all together is kind of how, what I'm thinking about. That, that squares the circle, if you will. Yeah, I mean, that quote is a foundational uh, piece in, uh, in, in libertarian economic theory, uh, one that many of us read in our textbooks in college. Uh, you know, I, I think that's spot on, Ed. I, I mean, I look at this, I'm looking now at the market cap of uh, Nikola is uh, $17.422 billion, uh, and I outperformed them in 2019 on a revenue basis, right? <laughs> Seems to me like a striking sign. And look, banks are 30% down. The other thing is, uh, you know, the S&P 500 uh, Today just closed at 3373. That's exactly 20 points below the all-time intraday high on 19 February 2020 of 3393 in the pre-US COVID era. So you look at these things, and it, it's not hard to feel like something is probably out of whack here. Yeah, and I, and you know I think uh, what what's out of whack is what what I would call the skew. That is 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 that private portfolio preferences are skewed towards longer-lived assets. You know, bond proxies, if you will. Uh, when we talk about going long duration, we're not talking about just going to the 10 and 30 year, but we're talking about going to Nikola as an example. And so those companies are going to outperform 
and the likes of JP Morgan and, and Goldman Sachs, are, relatively speaking, are going to underperform. You know, it's interesting. It's also worth backing up a little bit and explaining just how bizarre it is to talk about U.S. growth stocks as a proxy for bond prices. If you think about, if you think about the preferences, uh, you know, across across capital structures, traditionally, that's a that's a weird inversion. That's a strange thing to say. But it seems like the strange things to say are being said more frequently every day. Yeah, I mean, it's the paradigm that I'm looking at it in terms of how to think about uh, why what happens when you skew private portfolio preferences because people are 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 going into long dated assets that is bonds at the same time that they're you see this dichotomy between uh, asset prices in the equity market and the only thing that could possibly rationally explain that at simultaneously is that they're looking to go long duration. And that means that these are, in essence, bond proxies, if you will. Right. Um, and, so, and so that's how I'm, I'm describing it. Uh, the, you know, the real question is, and this is, gets to the initial claims thing and the fiscal cliff, yes. is what, what upsets that momentum? Uh, the, the, the momentum trade du jour that we're talking about, what causes that to unwind? Yeah, you know, and before we get into uh, the jobless claims and the and the fiscal cliff, it just reminds me. I just did an interview, uh, a crypto interview, uh, with uh, with Jeff Dorman, who's the CIO of Arca, and you know, he basically said, "It's we're ripping up the script here. I might as well just throw away my old CFA textbooks. Everything I learned about value investing from Graham and Dodd seems to be out the window the last eight years here, and we're in this new paradigm. And you have to wonder." what level of, of tail risk accumulation we are having as those paradigms, those tried and true paradigms shift. Yeah, you do have to wonder and you know when the Fed will come to the rescue and how much of an impact that rescue will have uh, in preventing those tail risks from materializing. Yeah, and to get into the fiscal cliff as a nice lead-in, the old joke in Washington used to be a billion here, a billion there. Before you know it, it adds up to some real money. And now uh, substitute a T for the B. We're talking trillions. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I think that's what that's where we are. So here's how I'm looking at it, uh, which is I think up until this point I is relatively benign. I think I have two charts here um, that I want to talk about. Uh, the first chart is the numbers that just came out this past week. This is for the week ended August the eighth. What you'll see, and I usually uh, I've been focusing on the non-seasonally adjusted number for initial claims. I'm not really ta talking about continuing claims, but initial claims. The non-seasonally adjusted number came in at 831, which was down 100, over 150,000 from the week before. Uh, and if you compare that, obviously, to a year ago, just as an example, the four-week moving average was about 214,750. So you can see we're up, on average, uh, you know, three or four times what we were last year, even 20 weeks into uh, the pandemic response. But now, if you look at this over a longer period of time, uh, from when we first went into lockdown, which was in late March, the numbers have been falling since the week of April the 4th in terms of uh, non-seasonally adjusted initial claims. So 18 weeks in a row, including this past week, we've seen those numbers fall except for just one week. So what the answer is, therefore, the economy is getting better. That is, is, is that even now, uh, from a jobless perspective, uh, we're, we're getting out of the hole that we dug before, slowly but surely. Yes, the numbers are elevated, but we're getting out of that hole. So that's, that's, the, that's the one side of things. Now, if you throw some fiscal stimulus at that, 
get the Fed in there with their trillions of dollars, bang, there you go. But when bank stocks are trading 30% below their all-time highs in February, it tells you that there's a lot of doubt from people that that's actually going to happen, that that scenario is going to play out. And there's a good reason why. Yeah. Ed, for people who aren't following the data as closely as you are, can you explain why you're looking at non-seasonally adjusted numbers versus seasonally adjusted numbers? I know we've covered this before, but also why the focus on initial claims rather than continuing claims? Because all of this data is reported in the same report. Why are you focusing on the data points you're focusing on right now? Yeah, because I'm, I'm looking at the flow. That is, I want to look at trends in order to see uh, how those trends will change. So, you know, continuing claims, which is an accumulation, it's sort of, I would call the stock, uh, doesn't really help me in terms of uh, understanding that. Initial claims, which is the number of people who are filing each in week uh, for their unemployment insurance for the first time. For me, that's a much better signal in terms of flow. And so, uh, with regard to that, I'm looking at the non-seasonally adjusted number because we're just going through a period of extreme seasonal adjustment uh, from that's from the period of June 27th through about uh, mid mid uh, September. Like if you go back to that chart that I put up of initial claims going down, you can see the seasonal adjustment goes from like 98.5 on 620 to 115.7. Um, on June the 11th, and then it, it just like craters all the way through into uh, September. To me, that adjustment, putting that uh, you know, putting that on top of a pandemic-related initial claims number that's you know three or four times the magnitude of an average number, is ridiculous. You're just going to magnify the pandemic-related claims in a way that's just not. Uh, Right. You know that that doesn't reflect reality. So I'm just looking at the non-seasonally adjusted uh, trend in order to get my 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 thinking through. You're looking for a pure play proxy for flow and rate of change. Exactly. Yeah, and I think that non-seasonally adjusted is a much better pure play than the reported numbers, just because of the seasonal adjustment factor. Yeah. So continuing down that road, fiscal cliff. What are your thoughts? Yeah. So in terms of the fiscal cliff, um, the data that's been coming out in terms of what's happening in Washington, D.C., where I live here, uh, is not the data aren't good. Uh, here's something from The Washington Post. They said that the two parties are not even close to being in the same ballpark. The Democrats, they can't they've said we don't want to do anything less than two trillion dollars for this next deal. The Republicans, including Mnuchin, have said $2 trillion already is too high. So, I mean, there's no overlap in their positions. Uh, Donald Trump, he himself has said he doesn't think anything's going to happen. Uh, and it looks like the Senate is likely to recess today for the remainder of the month. And it looks increasingly likely, according to The Washington Post, that there's going to be no deal on the coronavirus legislation until September. So that means not just uh, uh, now, but uh, another month. And then, interestingly enough, this this Washington Post article, I had no idea that this was coming up so quickly. They mentioned that it was the October 1st deadline for a government shutdown that is uh, driving the, the likelihood that you could see a deal in September. So the, to me, that sent alarm bells ringing, the concept that we're already wrangling over a pandemic-related uh, assistance, but then you know a government shutdown potentially looms in the distance in October. That tells you not only can we get 
no pandemic assistance, we could actually go into a government shutdown literally one month before an election in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah. You know, to quote from the same Washington Post article that you're referring to, I believe, quote, asked Wednesday if it was possible that there would be no deal until the deadline approached, Pelosi said, I hope not. No, people will die. Close quote. That gives you some sense of the level of tension around these negotiations, uh, negotiations on both sides in Washington. To play everybody's favorite drinking game, uh, let's quote Ed Harrison from Credit <laughs> Writedowns. Credit Writedowns. Let's go, man. You know, at six o'clock, grab your beers. Uh, quote, observation, there is likely to be weeks now when almost no fiscal support is coming to the U.S. economy. Not only is the federal government withdrawing fiscal support, and this is the key point, but state and local governments are guaranteed to add to the pain, which just brings up a whole other level of challenge that you've been thinking about. Yeah, you know, actually good that you mentioned that because I hadn't uh, really addressed that fact that, um, you know, the way that Trump is looking at uh, the the municipalities and the states, uh, he said actually in a tweet earlier this uh, week on Monday that the states and municipalities only he quote only want to bail out money for Democrat run states and cities that are failing badly. So he's fine with not giving them any money because he looks at this as political that the Democrats are looking for a bailout, and as a result of that. Um, you know, you're going to see some serious pain in terms of, you know, they don't have a magic money tree that they can go to and start printing stuff off. And then the Fed's going to come in and, and, uh, and you know, buy up all of their bonds. That's not what happens with the states. So they're going to cut and we're going to feel the pain as a result of those cuts. Yeah. New level of partisanship, new level of rancor. Yeah. Um, and let me just say that for me, what's going on with the United States Postal Service Honestly, is it's quite alarming because that's you know the latest headline is is that one of the problems with the deal getting done is is that the Democrats want to uh, give some money to the Postal Service that Trump doesn't want to give them because of mail-in ballots that he looks at mail-in ballots as a way for Democrats to boost their their turnout and he doesn't want that to happen so he's not going to agree to any deal whatsoever. Uh, irrespective if it's going to have this provision in it. So it's going to be a very difficult uh, thing to go for. I mean, just from a political perspective, let's let's think of it this way. It makes a lot of sense for Donald Trump to, to play hardball because he's behind in the polls. He's looking for, you know, a Hail Mary, if you will. And what he's trying to do is dirty up the Democrats in a way to say, look, these guys, it's not me. It's these guys, too. They're not playing ball. Uh, um, don't vote for them. And and so that that's his ploy with this. Uh, we'll just have to see if that works out. But that just creates a, a dynamic where there's no middle ground. Uh, right. And the likelihood that we could go over the cliff, not just in the pandemic stuff, but also in terms of a shutdown increases as a result of that. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah, you know, it starts to increasingly feel like a game of political chicken that both parties are playing, uh, except on the drag strip, there are 330 million of us uh, standing between the cars.
Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, that's that's where we are. So bringing this back uh, to the initial thing that we were talking about, I mean, the connection obviously is, is that what could upset the Apple cart, that could upset the Apple cart, right? I mean, uh, we have a massive amount of debt coming due in September. There, you know, we're printing money like crazy, like $500 billion worth of uh, issuance in September. So if you you have these dynamics playing out in the background while this is going on, that's not good for uh, bear steepening in the treasury market. It could well be, and it, it might just be a temporary bear steepening, but you could go from a, a bull flattening that we have now, which is supporting not just bonds, but these so-called bond proxies in the equity market, to a bear steepening, and that bear steepening causes bonds to sell off and equities to sell off at the exact same time. So th the pain trade is essentially bear steepening in the bond market. And what's happening in terms of the politics is only making that more likely to occur. Everyone take one more drink. Ed Harrison, credit write downs. Three deadlines matter then. The October 1st shutdown one, the November election one, and the January inauguration one. Leading up to those deadlines, expect political brinksmanship to play out in unprecedented ways and watch for a reversal in the downtrend in jobless claims for size of the economic impact in real time. Yeah. And, you know, I wrote that before the whole USPS thing came out. Uh, to me, I don't know what you think, but I think that that's unprecedented. The fact that we're playing political football over over our our mail. I mean, think about it this way: um, if you live in a rural community uh, and you want your check in the mail from whatever thing, you know, like let's say you're a farm or whatever, it, it's coming through the mail. You you can't have uh, a delay. Uh, you, yeah. you need to, you know, so this doesn't just affect the mail-in ballot, it affects everything. So this whole political football stuff is really metastasizing into things that are going to have, you know, very deleterious effects on the just organic functioning of the United States as a first world country, you know, not as a banana republic, which, of course, it's becoming very quickly. Yeah, you know, Ed, to your point, exactly, I think it, it just speaks to this unprecedented level of political risk. If you rewind the clock five years, you know, the post office, the United States Postal Service, it was a punchline for a joke because of how boring it was, right? There's what, you know, what could you be against with the Postal Service? And and also, I think it, it the risk is that it hurts rural voters who tend to be disproportionately Trump voters uh, to a large extent, probably far more than it's going to hurt you or me. We do everything via email. If somebody needs to send me something quickly, they can FedEx it, right? But that's not the case when you live somewhere rural. So it really is a, 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 dis, a disconcerting sign, and it just makes me think of additional political risk in the United States in the intermediate and long term. Yeah, and, and let me say two things on that. One is, is that the Supreme Court voted, I don't know what the implications are on something that happened in Rhode Island that's associated with it. I don't know what the vote was, but I believe that Gorsuch, uh, that Alito, and one other justice um, uh, they were against uh, the vote that um, you know allowed the balloting to go forward in the way that it should, uh, or, or that the the Democrats wanted it to uh, in Rhode Island. The Republicans were saying no, we don't want it to go along that way, and the Supreme Court basically overrode that. So I don't know what kind of implications that's going to have. But the second thing is with regard to those three deadlines that I was talking about. This no. is absentee ballots you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So now if if you, um, l l let's just say that you are um, Donald Trump and you're behind in the polls, you know, again, 
you really want you want to close that gap and that you need to close it aggressively. Uh, so you need an unforced error from the Democrats or you need people to move en masse on side. So you, really, at the end of the day, October 1st is a great deadline for playing brinkmanship, uh, as we just stated before. But then even if you, uh, you know, things don't go your way, because of the delays that we're seeing with the mail-in ballots and all of that, you can still, there's still another, uh, you know, uh, November the 3rd is another day where you could see a lot of a run-up to, you know, a lot of uh, a flurry of activity there. And then even after that, I think that we still have, you know, January the 20th to worry about because there's that interim period between November 1st and, and January the 20th, which at this point is still very murky in terms of how the transition is going to go. So I, I think that all three of those deadlines matter, you know, from a political perspective and, and therefore from an economic perspective, because we're in unprecedented times in terms of, you know, what could actually happen. Uh, anything could happen, from my view, in terms of pushing the envelope. Uh, the environment is so toxic in, in Washington, D.C., that uh, I think that the, the tail risk is very, is very severe. Yeah. Well, you know, let me tell you about the head shift that I had today in terms of the news flow. You know, yesterday, obviously, Joe Biden announced that he was picking uh, Kamala Harris, Senator Harris from uh, the state of California as his running mate. And uh, it was it was all Kamala all the time on all of the major news networks, right. the, you know, for the regular news networks, as well as the financial news networks. And at the time, I kind of joked around about it, saying, well, you know, I feel like talking about Senator Harris right now. It's like when you're at Thanksgiving dinner and uh, you have your cousin uh, who won't stop talking about middle relief pitching. There's this feeling you go, yeah, I know it matters, but it doesn't really matter right now. Like, we'll, we'll get there eventually. And today, with the news flow, with some of the points that you just made, it's very clear to me that we are already in the thick of the political season. There are major potential impacts on the economy. Obviously, whoever you support or don't support in this election, it's pretty clear uh, that there are very stark policy differences that are going to have a real economic impact. So, uh, it's almost like, and we've talked about this before, it's almost like we feel like it's it's going to be the political economy all the time between now and November and into January as we figure out what that transition looks like or the continuation of the existing policy looks like. It's not something that I frankly enjoy talking about um, because I'd rather focus on capital markets. But look, there's really very difficult to separate those two points at this point in time. Yeah, I agreed. And uh, I think that you're bringing up Kamala Harris makes a, a lot of sense as a, 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 a middle relief picture, because, you know, we didn't talk about Kamala Harris at all. Even yeah. though everyone else is talking about Kamala Harris, we, we haven't talked about it. why, because it doesn't really matter in terms of the things that we're talking about. So, I mean, from my perspective, we want to talk about the political economy only to the degree that it has a market or economic impact. And so the things that we've been talking about definitely will have an impact. Yeah. And, and that's why we're talking about them. Yeah, very well said. Ed, thanks for joining us. I guess we're wrapping up here. We are. But, you know, uh, so normally I would actually be in the Wednesday slot as well. And so uh, I didn't do the Wednesday slot, unfortunately. I wanted to ask you before I go off, I mean, what are your thoughts on uh, on you know the Wednesday slot? How did that go? Do you have any special thinking on that? Yeah, you know, it's an interesting question. You, you know, you and I have been kind of the core of this show, and uh, we've been doing these, uh, obviously, more than anyone else together. And, uh, you know, for me, the feeling is that 
I'm really just committed to keeping the core unchanged, uh, but also trying to experiment on the periphery. And that's what I think makes it interesting. On, you know, on Wednesday, we had on a, a gentleman who has a, a podcast uh, for investing for millennials. And we talked about the different ways that millennials perceive markets uh, in more of a behavioral finance way uh, than we typically do, which is deep dive on you know, fundamentals or technical analysis of actual, uh, of actual uh, market functions. And so we, it was interesting to see the comments. It was really starkly divided. Uh, we had some people who pushed back uh, very strongly saying, you know, that's not what I come to RVD before. And we had other people saying, this was really interesting. This was a great change of pace. Mentally, it was an interesting exercise for me to try and understand the way other people see the markets. You know, my thinking is about RVDB is that we're going to keep the core unchanged, but we're going to keep continue to experiment on the periphery. There are going to be things, uh, some of which you'll love, some of which you won't love. I feel the same way. There are some pieces that I find, uh, I go, well, that, that was interesting, but I probably don't need to hear about that again for another six months. And uh, so that's how I think about it. I'm curious how you think about it. Well, you know, actually, the um, I, I agree with everything you said. But what I would say is that, you know, the reason I was asking the question is because you know that I'm going to go on holiday and uh, we're going to have Rao on Friday. Uh, but then in the Wednesday and Thursday slot, guess who's back? Uh, yeah. So Roger yeah. Hurst. Uh, so it, it goes Crowd back. To, I know. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited to get to. I, I'd like to see what kind of do uh, Roger is sporting these days because he, he let the hair grow long the last time that I saw him. But um you know, uh, with me going and then uh, Roger coming back, I think it's good. I look at him as an integral part of the rotation, and I'm just happy to 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 get him back onto the show. And so I, I agree wholeheartedly with the, your comments. Uh, I think that uh, it'll be a good week, and uh, I'll be watching from my couch on the beach. Ah, very nice. I envy you that. <laughs> you bet. <laughs> All right. This time for realsies. Thanks for joining us. You bet. Good to talk to you, Ash. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.